Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In today's episode, titled Revelations of Love and John Steinbeck, I speak with the eminent Thomas theologian. Father Michael Sherwin about how Aquinas' conception of divine love can help us gain a deeper appreciation of the stories and novels of John Steinbeck. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am very pleased to have Father Michael Sherwin with me today on the podcast. Father Sherwin is Professor of Fundamental Moral Theology at the University of Fribourg in Switzerland. He has also taught at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, where he received his initial formation as a Dominican and was ordained as a priest in 1991. He graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 2001, where he studied under Jean Porter and wrote a doctoral dissertation on Aquinas on Love. He has written many articles and a wonderful book called By Knowledge and by Love, Charity and Knowledge and the Moral Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. That came out from CUA in 2005, but he has also written a forthcoming book called Love and Virtue Theological Essays. Welcome to the podcast, Father Sherwin. It's great to be with you. So you have chosen actually a short story by John Steinbeck to discuss today in the context of talking about love in the sacred sense, in the sense of charity or caritas. First story is uh, Breakfast by John Steinbeck. And so I guess I wanted to start by asking you to say something about Steinbeck as a writer and what draws you to Steinbeck. John Steinbeck was confronted in ways similar to Hemingway with how to maintain or retain the beauty of the moral vision of Christianity after he could no longer believe in Christianity or believe even in God. And he wrote a collection of essays called The Long Valley, and they are amazing essays, but one essay rings true to being a verbatim account of something that really happened to him. And historians believe that it it did happen to him when he was working for the federal government to write about the plight of migrant workers in the Salinas Valley. And early one morning, he bumped into a migrant family and experienced their charity in the simple event of offering this wayward traveler, the stranger, who it seems to have been Steinbeck himself, offering to share their breakfast with him. And it's a mother and child preparing, and you find the father and probably the father-in-law acknowledging his presence and inviting him to share this humble meal. And he tells the story. It's only a little more than a thousand words, only three pages. And you might think it's not significant, but later he will incorporate it almost verbatim into the chapter 22 of Grapes of Wrath, and he makes it central to the Grapes of Wrath. 
In the essay version, in the short story version, he says, This thing fills me with pleasure. I don't know why. I can see it in the smallest detail. I find myself recalling it again and again, each time bringing more detail out of sunken memory. You can make the argument that it actually becomes the central theme of The Grapes of Wrath, and that a version of Breakfast is how The Grapes of Wrath ends. My interest, though, in it is in what it says to us about Steinbeck's insights on one aspect of the character of love. When he incorporates it into chapter 22, it's not simply that he retells it verbatim, but there's an earlier breakfast account in The Grapes of Wrath where we are introduced to Tom Joad's mother and her character, who, like Abraham at the tent, offers breakfast to strangers who turn out to be Tom Joad himself and uh, returning from prison, and Jim Casey, the erstwhile preacher. Theological challenge of the breakfast emerges when the family in its joy asks the preacher to say grace. And I quote now from Steinbeck, Casey ran his fingers through his hair nervously. I got to tell you, I ain't a preacher no more. If me just being glad to be here and being thankful for people that's kind and generous, if that's enough, why, I'll say that kind of grace. But I ain't a preacher no more. I can't say no grace like I used to say. I'm glad of the holiness of breakfast. I'm glad there's love here. That's all. I'm glad there's love here. Steinbeck, as a young and sensitive artist, encounters the holiness of hospitality and sees it for what it is, a revelation of love. In a letter to his teenage son, Tom, written 20 years later, Steinbeck will describe more fully his vision of what love is and what love entails. In it, he states, love is, quote, an outpouring of everything good in you, of kindness and of consideration and respect. Not only the social respect of manners, but the greater respect, which is recognition of another person as unique and valuable. This love, quote, can release in you strength and courage and goodness and even wisdom you didn't know you had. Love as the recognition of value. Think Steinbeck's insight, the importance of his insight, becomes evident if we look back at early controversies about the character of love, controversies that stay with us. And part of the difficulty of understanding the nature of love, I think, emerges easily if we just see how Scripture deals with love from the very beginning. We're told in the Matthew's Gospel that we're supposed to love God uh, with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourself. But it doesn't say anywhere what love is. Are you just thinking of the rise of Christianity and, and how the Christian ideal of love might differ from what we get from the pagans? You know, people often contrast eros and agape as if they're totally different things. So I'm not sure if that's the controversy you have in mind. Let's look back at the history, the modern history of that way of posing the question. Uh, there was a genius young French Jesuit who unfortunately went off to the First World War and was killed almost immediately in the trenches. And he had written an amazing dissertation on faith. And then there's a second smaller dissertation, which he wrote on what he called the problem of love. And what was his name? Uh, Pierre Rousselot. Okay. So Pierre Rousselot knew from reading the text that there had been a medieval controversy on the psychology of love. Mm -hmm. But the critical editions did not exist for a lot of those documents. 
So I would be among those who would say that although he was able to identify that there had been a controversy, he really didn't identify what the two sides of the controversy were. Mm -hmm. But his way of divvying up the controversy profoundly influenced Anders Nygren. And there's probably no book that has influenced more or provoked more studies in scripture and in patristics and even in medieval studies than Anders Nygren, Eros, and Agape. Right. Or I think in the English translation, it's Agape and Eros. But mm -hmm. in the original German, it's or Swedish, it's in the other, it's, uh, the other way around. So Agape and Eros provoked people to do the studies. And for that, it, we owe uh, Nygren a great debt. But what the studies reveal is that Nygren comes up with a distinction between this ascending desiderative Eros that is pagan love mm -hmm. and a descending sacrificial oblative love that is uh, biblical agape and makes this a hard and fast contrast. And then mm -hmm. he presents Augustine as someone who comes up with a caritas synthesis, which is a blasphemous mixing of two different visions. The problem with this is that the data just doesn't support that dividing up uh, neither of the pagan understanding of love nor of the biblical understanding. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it'd be helpful just to look at, you know, just go to the first four or five references in Genesis. The first surprise, if you try to look for love in the Old Testament, is that the first time the word love, the common Hebrew word, ahav, which the Greek translators, known as the Septuagint translation, regularly translate as agape, not always, but regularly. Ahav is used for the very first time in Genesis, but not at the point you might think. It's at Genesis 22 too, and it's God speaking to Abraham. So the first person to use the word love in the Old Testament is God. And he uses it to refer to Abraham's love for his son. Mm -hmm. Take your son Isaac, your only one whom you love. Ahav is the root there. And agapeton in the Greek. But then the next reference is Isaac's love for his wife, Rebekah whom he took into his tent, and he loved her. So we have Ahav used for a father's love for his son, a son that will be sacrificed, a son's love for his wife. And then there's Isaac saying to Esau, hunt game for me and prepare for me a savory food such as I love. So a man's love for food. Each time it's Ahav. So there's a problem with trying to portray the root word for love as either in its pagan form being desiderative or in its uh, Christian form being ob oblative, because the word love, just as in English or in French or any of the modern languages, is used in many different ways. Right. But as the controversy unfolds, there is a sense that by the early Middle Ages, there's a concern that presenting love as desire for God doesn't do justice to the full, rich understanding of what charity is. And that's why Steinbeck's secularized notion of love is really important because he's secularizing something that is at the heart, I think, of true love. This recognition, celebration, and affirmation of the value of the other, mm -hmm. the beauty of that familial hospitality. He sees it, he celebrates, he is in admiration of it. And he tells his young son, Tom, in that letter, that's what love is on its deepest level, to celebrate the other. Now, he's not uh, denying the desiderative part, Someone who I think articulates this really well fairly recently is Annie Dillard in her book, The Matries, where she's trying to figure out how it's possible for her main character to have been faithful to his wife 
for a certain number of years and then suddenly fall in love with someone else and end up in a completely different relationship. What has happened? Mm -hmm. And there's two aspects of it, which she describes the desiderative part of love, the passion of love, as the first love's first feeling of cliff jumping. But she also thinks that that doesn't last very long. A period of 18 months or seven years, it's not infatuation. It's something important and it's an element of romantic love. But she also thinks there's another element of love, which she describes in different ways, whether it's directed will, somehow a custody of attention. She comes to see that if she's going to persevere or if her characters are going to persevere in their relationships, there has to be this element of directed will where you focus your attention on the other and you will the true good for the other. Mm -hmm. So love is affirmation of the other and love as this first feeling of cliff jumping. And I think that is a recurring issue as to love. Is love desire for the other or is love a kind of disciplined willing the good for the other? And there's a tension there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. One place where we see it early on is the young Augustine. The young Augustine describes his own experience in the Confessions as his passionate desire for God. Very first paragraph of the Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The idea that the whole drama of salvation, the whole drama of the Christian life is well-directed love, but love as well-directed desire, finding the true object of desire, the object that's going to fulfill our desire. As a young man, he'll define charity as that. But is that a sufficient understanding of charity? And it's only later in life uh, he'll get into a kind of technical reappraisal of his early views in Book 14 of the City of God. But I think where it comes out most clearly is in his commentary on First John which is also a much later work. And in 1 John, what happens? He's confronted with first the affirmation that God is love. Now, if God is love, that makes it difficult to say that, that love is desire because God doesn't lack anything. That's right. So what does it mean to say that God is love? What does that tell us about the nature of love? He would have gotten this idea of eros or love as a kind of lack that he's picking up from Plato? He's picking it up from his reading of the Neoplatonists, especially uh, Plotinus. And the part of the element that Nigrin doesn't recognize is that for this love as eros, the fulfillment of eros is a kind of self-forgetfulness. So someone who's trained in Neoplatonic thought wouldn't have a problem with Augustine's first way of presenting love, because they would realize that it's drawing you up and out of yourself to be concerned for the other, to be living for the other in this ecstatic way. So when Augustine describes love as a desire for the other for himself, a desire to enjoy the other for himself, or desire specifically to enjoy God for himself, the propter deum for himself, a lot rests on that. And mm -hmm. it wasn't always clear to later readers of Augustine what that meant. So that's where Augustine himself sees that he has to rearticulate, especially when he starts to write more pastorally, not drawing upon the philosophy of Plotinus. And I'll just give you a little passage of his commentary. It's, we, we say commentary, but it's not really a commentary. It's his preaching on First John. 
So he's talking to his people, and this is what he has to say. All love, whether that which is called carnal, which is want to be called not delection, but amor, amor, so the Latin there word, delectio being a, a word reserved for love and the will, all love has an element of well-wishing. So that's very interesting. He introduces a notion that wasn't in his early work, that all human love has an element of benevolentium, of well-wishing, and of wishing well to those who are loved, similar to what Steinbeck says in his letter to Tom. And then the key thing that seems to be, in some ways, a criticism of his earlier self. We ought not to love another, nor are we able to love them, the way in which we hear gluttons say that they love thrushes. Now, thrushes are these tiny birds that the Romans loved, and they would spend their fortunes trying to prepare these little birds to eat. And he says, we should not love others the way in which gluttons are said to love thrushes. You ask why the glutton loves thrushes? That he may kill, that he may consume. He says he loves, and to this end, he loves them, that they may cease to be. To this end, he loves them, that he may consume them. Presumably, a glutton loves a delicious, rare meal insofar as it's going to satisfy his own appetites. That's right. right. It's very self-directed. Well, that's kind of coming from Aristotle, isn't it? I mean, his discussion on friendship and the Nicomachean ethics, so book eight and nine, he talks about friendship and friends will the good of one another. He uh, develops that. And of course, books eight and nine were not known until the uh, beginning of the 13th century. So the 12th century Renaissance didn't have those two books and they didn't have access to that. Mm -hmm. But is Augustine influenced in his later work by that? It may be books eight and nine, but it also may be the rhetoric. Because in the rhetoric, Aristotle gives a definition of philain, which is the verb to love another with the love of friendship. Mm -hmm. And there are various Latin translations of that passage, but they were not accessible to the Middle Ages until towards the end of St. Thomas Aquinas' life, Mm -hmm. that definition of what friendship love is. And it's that definition that Aquinas will use to put an end to a controversy that that raged for over a 100 years on how to interpret Augustine. And that's absolutely fascinating we have the text that poor old Father Pierre Rousselot didn't have access to. Robert Wheelocks has done tremendous work to make available to us the controversies that were taking place in, by the early scholastics. So, so scholasticism, the transition from memorizing biblical text and patristic text, fathers of the church, the early saints, these texts would be memorized in collection. And the scholastics start using the question and answer method Instead of memorization, they want to start applying methods of analysis that they've learned in the rediscovery of Greek science to these texts. And they start raising questions to their heritage that they don't yet know how to answer. And that becomes a crisis for them. And one of the crises is that someone writes an anonymous work, very brief work, that says charity is not desire for God. Charity is the service of God. Those people who do good things because they desire God, they desire God in a mercenary way. Yes, I hear this all the time. And it kind of reminds me of a modern sense of charity. 
So if I want to be charitable, right, mm-hmm. I write a check to some mediating mm-hmm. institution. Yeah. And then the bulk of that money goes towards dispensing acts of service. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to give them like food and clothing and shelter or whatever it is that they need. Mm-hmm. It's very divorced from how we speak about love, where love is the cliff jumping and the ecstatic mm-hmm. union. So if we want to think of a secularized charity, we don't at all think about what Steinbeck is talking about. Well, and see, but notice how that vision of charity, we are powerful, we are full, and the objects of our love are weak. They're not even really, do they have any personality? We exercise from our fullness a kind of noble deed. Mm-hmm. The focus in some ways is on us. And we're strong, they're weak. We're powerful, they lack power. They're needy, we have everything. But Steinbeck's experience of walking through with looking like he's just an out-of-work laborer and coming across the beauty of a young wife, a young mother with a child in the arms, making a breakfast for her husband and her father-in-law, and then seeing those men offer this stranger to share in that warm meal he sees something there that is transcendently beautiful, and what he does is affirm it. Often, the wary traveler, to be treated as a person, to receive that on both sides, the hospitality that he receives from them, but also his way of loving them, they both benefit. There's a, a nature to that love that is lacking in these polarized debates as to whether love is desire for an absent good or whether love is simply service. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the importance of what this hundred years throughout, really, throughout the 12th century, the debates over the character of love, where you'll have people who are against the notion of love as desire, saying it's just service that doesn't seek any reward, which in the end is a kind of very cold thing. And you'll see see this reemerge with Fenelon. And Notice the, the notion of God that has that Fenelon presupposes. It's this terrifying God that Fenelon doesn't want to owe him anything. Right. And that's what's lacking is a notion of participation in something that we can celebrate. Do you want to be loved apart from any of your characteristics? Yeah. No, of I course mean, not. If, if someone were I knew a, I knew a case in Mexico where a woman who was raised in a dysfunctional doloristic family mm-hmm. Mary it was being courted by two men she was attracted to one not really by the other but she felt sorry for the other and so she chose out of a disordered I think understanding of Christian charity she married the one she felt sorry for yeah. didn't marry the man she loved right. what happened when he found out that he was loved as kind of an act of compassionate or charity pity, pity it destroyed the marriage. No, no one, one wants to be No one wants way. to be petty. So what's missing there is a notion of participation in the good. And that's notions of the common good. That's what's disappeared. How do you talk about disinterested love when it's a question of a common good? Can you say what you mean by common good? Yeah. A common good is my good, but it's a good that I can only enjoy with others. I can't be a brother alone. Being a brother is not a private good. Disinterest and interest don't make sense among a band of brothers. A band of brothers love their common good, their common brotherhood. You can't be a mother alone. You can't be a daughter alone. You can't be a father alone or a son alone. There are certain goods that of their nature are common. 
for classical culture, belonging to a family was a common good. Belonging to the perfect society, which for the Greeks was the city-state, which is not an empire. It wasn't the federation of city-states. It wasn't the nation-state as we know it. Those who translate the word civitas from the Latin into state are violating the Latin. It means city. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we would translate Augustine's great work as the state of God, which, of course, it doesn't mean. It means the city of God. So the classical city-state is a little city that has enough land around it to support that the life of that city. And then the third level of the common good is creation, that you as a member of creation promote its good, and it's the good of all of creation, mm-hmm. and, and it's your good in promoting it. So some of these categories of disinterested love and interested love arise once you've lost a notion of common goods. Right. So what would be a quintessential individual good or, or private good as opposed to a common good? My food is not your food. Right. right. I mean, so there are private goods. I'm when I'm eating my hamburger, you can't eat my hamburger. Well, we could share it. That's why the the later scholastics will talk about the material common good. And mm-hmm. in Catholic social teaching, in the encyclical tradition, almost always they're talking when they try to give quote unquote definition. You can't give a definition of the good, so it's not really a definition. But when they give a description of the common good and Catholic social teaching, almost always they're talking about the material conditions that promote the common good. Mm-hmm. They're not actually talking about the common good as traditionally understood. Mm-hmm. They're talking about, you can talk about, for example, fresh air, fresh water, all of those things. Those are, in a sense, common goods. But when I'm drinking my glass of water, it's my glass of water I'm drinking. Right. But when I am living as a brother, I'm promoting the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And that's a, my good, but it's a good that's shared by all the brothers. Right. And it's not competitive. That's right. See, that's the thing. And that's why Steinbeck, his description is so important. And it's what the controversies among the scholastics were looking for. They were looking for how to articulate what was a true experience. If you read the Psalms, for example, there is a desire for God that's expressed in the Psalms. It's a legitimate desire. Mm -hmm. It's not illegitimate for the infant to desire its mother's milk. That's mm-hmm. according to nature. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. We want them to desire that. So it's not illicit. But is it the fullness? And that's why it's always very interesting the way in which the scriptures talk about infancy and growing up and the way in which ultimately the desire for God leads to what? Being configured to Christ and his cross mm-hmm. and having a new center of our desires, which is the kingdom. The desire for God in the New Testament and even already in the Old Testament is related to the kingdom. It's a desire to promote and attain a God as a social good. It's God desired as the fulfillment of creation, we together living with God. And Aquinas' contribution to this debate is that Augustine really is talking about when he develops his definition of charity, it's a definition of hope animated by charity. But in his fights with the Stoics, who think you can be happy in this life, Mm. his understanding of charity is really the charity proper to hope. God loved as an absent good. In his early struggles, he's addressing that. Mm. And it's only later, after encountering the definition of charity, of God as love, uh, in 1 John, that he sees he's got a larger vision. And so Aquinas, using Aristotle, Well, deepen it. It's not just desire for God, but in charity, we are united to God. There's a koinonia already in this life. Mm -hmm. 
and we will the good of the other in God, and we celebrate God's good. He lacks nothing, so we celebrate that good. And those are the type of things that that Steinbeck, in his own way, it's a kind of natural mysticism he's in tune with. It's not sufficient in, in Steinbeck, ultimately, because Steinbeck's vision in the end, the only thing that's left to us in face of the natural world's indifference to human suffering is to do an act of unselfish celebration of the good of the other. You only learn this at the end. The real protagonist of The Grapes of Wrath is Rosa Sharon, who is selfish and a real annoying character throughout the entire book until the end. And the world is liquefying. They're being flooded out. It's not at all clear that they will survive much longer. She's just lost her child, and she does an act of Roman charity. Now, the, What do you mean by Roman well, charity? Well, I'll come back to that. Mm. There's a spoiler alert here for those okay. who have not yet read The Grapes of Wrath. But the I feel like spoilers for great books is yeah. okay, because you uh, should read them anyway. Yes. Well, the publisher tried to convince Steinbeck to not put this as the ending of the book. And when Steinbeck went back to Salinas, one of his mother's friends, who was the librarian, thanked God that his mother was dead, did not see the type of book that he had written. That shows you how they did not understand what Steinbeck was about. And now it may be true that they were scandalized by his atheism, and I think that is a sad tragedy in Steinbeck's life. I'm not sure who's to blame for that. But Roman charity is an artistic model of Roman behavior, of the ideal Roman matron. And it goes back to a story where a citizen was condemned to die by starvation. And they let his daughter come visit him. And they couldn't understand. They made sure that she wasn't bringing any food in. They couldn't understand why this old man wasn't dying. Mm -hmm. And what she was doing, she was a nursing mother. She would come into his prison cell and nurse him with mm -hmm. her milk. Mm -hmm. So that became an ideal of what's known as Roman charity. And in the Renaissance, it began to be an interest to more recent painters as well. But Christian charity as opposed to Roman charity, and Christian artists began to portray it, is the as a mother nursing many infants. So it's a different vision. Steinbeck uses Roman charity to symbolize what Hemingway, in his own way, uh, in different books, it's doing an unselfish act in the midst of the natural world's indifference to uh, our plight, and just simply for the love of the good, the love of the, the true, the beautiful. And that's how uh, Rose of Sharon grows into real charity. You find it in The Red Pony, too. The little boy, who you only discover at the end, he's the Red Pony. He's what is The Red Pony? Just so The Red Pony is a series. It also appears in that same collection of short stories called... So this is a Steinbeck short story. Yes. Well, it's three short stories that was later published as a book. Mm -hmm. But these uh, short stories are present in The Long Valley. And, of course, it became very popular, and they tried to portray it as a children's book, and they even made a Hollywood movie out of it. But it's not really a children's book. And what it does reveal is how this boy, who kind of is portrayed as being a natural, you know, red pony. They're the young humans are violent, and they have blood on their hands. They are red in tooth and claw. And yet he grows up, and the, the climax of the story is... Uh, is an unselfish act, the only one he does in the entire book, of making a lemonade, not for himself, but for the old man. And these are Steinbeck's ideas of 
how we grow to see the true, the good, and the beautiful, and to celebrate them. Mm-hmm. And they are at the heart of his notion of love, as he as he so well portrays to his son. Mm-hmm. And I think it illustrates well what Aquinas, in drawing upon Aristotle's definition of friendship love, to will the good for the other, that adds to his account. The other thing that Aquinas does is that unlike the passion in our will, which he sees as good and beautiful, we should desire good things for our own fulfillment, he sees that the love in the will is a chosen love. You know, we don't desire Brussels sprouts if we don't have a certain affinity for Brussels sprouts. Right. So that would be more like an appetite. An appetite. A lower appetite. Yeah, but you could say the same thing about someone who is is drawn to certain personalities more than others. It's in their affections. There's a certain affinity for those people Mm -hmm. in their personal affections. But beautiful thing about spiritual love is I can choose in my will who to put into my affections. Mm -hmm. And a good example is on the psychological level. I may not at all be drawn to my mother-in-law. She may annoy me. Uh, everything that she does may annoy me. So on the emotional, psychological level, I can have a real aversion and go down the list of why I have this aversion. But I can choose, and Aquinas thinks the word dilexio presupposes choice, alexio, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that I can choose to put my mother-in-law in in my affections, Mm -hmm. and it becomes the principle of all my actions. Yeah, you can choose to love someone, but can you choose... To love them joyfully. Can you choose joy? Right. Well, it's interesting. I think there's two levels of that. Well, let's go back. Bergson has this interesting distinction between pleasure and joy. This is Henri Bergson. Henri Bergson, the philosopher, the French philosopher. This is sort of like mid-20th century phenomenology. He dies during the war, Second World War. He's uh, Ilan Vital is some of his notions. Uh, He taught at the Collège Collège de France. many years. He influenced Jacques Maritain. And, Jacques Maritain being the, uh, French, the French Thomas. French philosopher who discovered Aquinas and yes, yeah. he's been described as a neo-Thomist, yes. Okay, um, I'm sorry. And I guess Raisa, who is my great hero, wrote the autobiography of their their journey to faith. And Bergson had a role in that. But Bergson describes the distinction between pleasure which seems to be kind of hardwired in some ways in nature for certain things. And then joy is something spiritual that seems to occur when a, a good is attained, something's accomplished, it's a deeper reality. And can you bring your psychology around to find joy in virtue? The experience of the saints is that there is maybe an initial pleasure in doing the difficult good, even before you actually have the virtue very deeply rooted in you, you can feel that spiritual joy in the accomplishment in the midst of still feeling the lack of the thing you wanted. So, Is it sort of like the pleasure of running a marathon, like it didn't kill me? Yeah, or, well, I've experienced that pleasure, by the way. Yeah, well, I'll, <laughs> I, I've used the example of poor old um, Matt Talbot, who had basically grown up an alcoholic, and he has an event on a Saturday morning that changes his life, and he goes from working to drink to a life dedicated to to charity. And it doesn't mean that overnight he stopped desiring alcohol, and not just desiring alcohol, but the kind of false camaraderie that, that surrounded the whole culture of that. 
he desired that very deeply for a long time after he stopped drinking. But he also, already from the very beginning, found joy in this other good that he had discovered as a grace. I mean, I think it's clearly a grace of conversion. But was it easy in the beginning? No. And so it does start with that enkratea, that self-mastery, that in spite of how you feel, despite of your inclinations, despite the fact that your whole being seems to say that spending your whole day in the bar drinking is your good and your fulfillment, in spite of all of that, you can choose not to. And they also experience the joy that comes from the new good that you've begun to love. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the ideal, the, these are all analogies, but the ideal when you see athletes or musicians who have acquired expertise, this new freedom to inv- be involved in improvisation with other musicians, to create music in real time that no one has ever heard before. And there is a kind of kalos, this, this beauty in that critical present moment in the Kairos, there's a joy that comes from that. And you can see joy on their faces. Or when you see expert basketball players, if you had the privilege to sit on the court side at a college game or a professional game, even though you may hear many things that are not or that are less than edifying, you also see the real joy that comes from turning a good group activity of like a layup or whatever. There is joy there. The photos, one of the reasons why Michael Jordan was so beloved is that you could see the joy in his excellence. Now, that's an ancient analogy. It goes back to the ancients. Plato, Aristotle, Plutarch, they all used the arts, and whether it's the fine arts or, or music or sport, for analogies of the moral life. But there's something there as well, right? The person acquires real joy in loving and living according to the true good. But it takes training. It takes time. Yeah, and suffering. Yeah. So, again, you may... On one level, really not want to hang out with your mother-in-law, but you can choose to do so and find joy in it. Right. Can I ask a clarifying question in all of this? So on the one hand, we have from the Annie Dillard quote that you gave us in the beginning, the difference between the kind of cliff jumping aspect of mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. where... It's kind of like what Plato talks about. It's like the divine madness. It, eros, it like strikes you. It comes from the outside. Mm-hmm. You're so taken. You must be with mm-hmm. the beloved in whatever sense that takes. And so there's that. And then there's the directed will or decision mm-hmm. where, no, you now have to make a constant choice to sustain this, give it your attention and to maybe celebrate it in the sense that you're talking about. So there's that dichotomy and then there's the dichotomy of love as need right Mm -hmm. like i'm desire is about getting something that i currently lack like Mm -hmm. that's sort of like the nature of desire it's 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 a kind of neediness and then once that need is fulfilled like i'm right there's Mm -hmm. the pleasure right? right the desires has has reached its summation there's that and the other aspect of desire which is just the celebration of the other wanting the good of the other are those different contrasts or are those different ways of pressing on the same contrast so if you look at book 14 of the city of god he starts to see he needs to develop a psychology of love if augustine wants to say that two loves built two cities one the city of man one the city of god he's got to be able to have a psychology of love where the word can be used in a way that makes sense for both types of love So he's got to come up with 
how you understand one is divine and one is leading you away from God. Mm-hmm. He makes the distinction between a good will, a good voluntas, and a bad voluntas. And then when the thing you want is absent, then there's a good desire if the voluntas is good. And if it's present, there's a good joy. But the desire and the joy presupposes, if it's good desire and good joy, a good voluntas. Mm-hmm. And then he says the other is an evil voluntas, a, a will for something evil. The evil is absent. You desire, but it's an evil desire. And when it's present, you're taking evil pleasure in that present evil or a disordered good, a lesser good. Because you're never desiring evil as evil. You're just desiring the lesser good when you should be desiring the greater. Well, Aquinas likes that psychology, but he's going to use the man he thinks is the expert in human experience, Aristotle, to deepen it. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to figure out, well, how to understand this thing called voluntas. And Aquinas' principle in everything he does is if we're going to try to understand what is less evident, we begin by what is more evident. That's why he puts his first study of spiritual love in his account of the passion of love. Mm-hmm. But his account of the passion of love, he's going to ground on humble local motion natural local motion it's the beginning of philosophy any child when you have the car keys in your hand you drop the car keys the child's fascinated Mm -hmm. children are able to take something in their hands and drop them unendingly they're fascinated by gravity well they're learning cause and effect and they're learning this weird thing called natural movement Mm -hmm. so in his vision there must be and i think with einstein and general relativity we've returned to a a similar idea that the relationship between these things there's a principle of motion and then there's motion and aquinas wants to see all of love presupposing a principle of motion and he's going to come up with a term for that but it's a connaturality a complacencia is the word he's going to come down to a pleasant affinity for the loved object and when the object's absent there is movement towards it right. or a desire for it. And when it's present, there's joy or pleasure. Mm-hmm. But the un- So for Aquinas, love always presupposes a certain form of desire or at least a potential for desire. But in the will, there's those two unique characteristics that we can choose who is going to be in our affections, who is going to be a principle of our love. We choose our complacencia. We, we choose who is put into our the principle of our love, that spiritual love. And when we desire a good, it's willing the good for another. So we may be desiring a cup of coffee for ourselves. So there's the object of our love, us, ourselves. And then there's the good we desire for ourselves, the cup, cup of coffee. But in the will, it's always willing some good for another. And if the other has that good, then it's celebrating that good. So it's not a desire, it's a rejoicing. Now, the complexity of human experience is that we have these two levels. We're amphibians, as Plotinus says, right? We have this animal passionate element, which we need. If we didn't enjoy eating food, we wouldn't eat, we'd die. Sexual activity wasn't pleasurable, or just simply human fellowship wasn't pleasurable, we would also die. Mm -hmm. So these are very pleasurable goods. It's important that they be that way. Mm -hmm. But they are also chosen at the right time in the right place. So there is also that 
what Annie Dillard says, directed will. And that's why there's such a comic and tragic character to human life, because the passions don't always seem to correspond to the right time and the right place. No, and they the, do not. And the will doesn't always get that right either. Our wisdom and will, our knowledge and love are not always in harmony. Mm -hmm. But at least we have a psychology that can account for all of those levels of who we are. Now, in the good case for Aquinas, so if we're thinking about the perfected person or the virtuous mm -hmm. person, is that a case where their will sort of takes up the passions in a well-ordered way? Or is it that the will sort of transcends the passions and leaves them behind? What's the relationship there between love and the, and the passionate sense and, and love and the rationally directed attention sense? Yeah. Well, I think it's important to realize that Aquinas is a theologian. And in spite of efforts for a lot of interesting cultural reasons to turn him into a philosopher who developed <laughs> a philosophical freestanding virtue ethics, I don't think he really did. He studies the acquired virtues because they are the analogies by which we understand the infused virtues. Can we, you say what the difference between acquired and infused virtue is? Yeah, well, again, let's look at the analogy with the arts and with sport. I learn how to play basketball by playing basketball. I know I can dribble a basketball because I have acquired that skill and I am psychologically disposed to know that I have that skill. And so even though I'm not dribbling a basketball, if someone throws me a basketball, I can dribble it. That's an acquired excellence. Now, it's acquired excellence that doesn't make me a good person, but it can make me a good basketball player. Virtue is an excellence that actually makes me a good person. Mm -hmm. It disposes me the to black. act. Okay. So now that's an acquired disposition. But Augustine notices that even the pagans that he admires most, sooner or later, are impious, and they don't act according to their virtue, that it's not possible for fallen humanity to persevere on its own, even according to the excellences that it's acquired, that the person has acquired. And next, even if you have acquired all these great virtues, you're still subject to chance, sickness, Absolutely. suffering, and mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. So the claims of the Stoics, because the Stoics, it's not that Augustine doesn't have a notion of imperfect virtue, imperfect but natural virtue. It's that the notion would be incomprehensible to his contemporaries. For the Stoics, if you have the virtues, you are impervious to suffering. You are the happy person because mm -hmm. you have the virtues. Mm -hmm. And Augustine says, those people aren't happy. They're just bravely unhappy. <laughs> so... Aquinas inherits all of that. It's very clear when he gives his definition or his account of imperfect but true happiness, who's the authority that he quotes in the said contra? Job. So you already he's signaling you to you that his notion of imperfect happiness, the accent is on imperfect. Mm -hmm. It's true happiness, but it's imperfect happiness. Right. And then he cites Augustine mm -hmm. as the one who can delineate all the sorrows of to which this life is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's only the notion of infused virtue that makes a life in the midst of death, a life in the midst of this world's suffering, ordering us towards eternal life and ordering us towards eternal happiness in the kingdom. And there's the paradox of, of Aquinas' whole virtue ethics that many try to tame 
or limit. And there are a lot of cultural reasons for that, but Aquinas is very clear. To live the Christian life is to be configured to the cross of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And yet, it's to learn how to love God fully and truly in a way that will lead us to eternal happiness. And we can have a foretaste of that in this life. So those virtues are true, and they bring us joy in the midst of suffering, and ultimately lead us to a life after this life and in the fullness of the resurrection. But it's not a fulfillment on the earthly sense. You're not Superman. You know, mm-hmm. you're not going to win the lottery. You're not going to be the wealthiest person. And so you can have perfect virtue, but have sickness and ignorance even and a lot of other things. Virtue doesn't mean success in Aquinas' vision. So one thing that I'm wondering, because one of the first things that you pointed out about Steinbeck is that he's an atheist. He's mm-hmm. trying to make sense of the so-called transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty mm-hmm. in a secular world, a world without God, and make sense of a very high form of love in a world without God, something that would be a reflection of Christian charity without Christ. And I guess I just want to invite you to say more about that project, that Mm -hmm. project of trying to secularize the sacred. Mm -hmm. And it is unclear if there's anything sacred in a world that only has, in the end, natural explanations of things. And if Steinbeck wants to see something sacred and holy in this kind of scene, Mm -hmm. like how does he ground it? Well, can he? Let's say that authors are often like the canary in the mine. They try to articulate things that are vital to them, that perhaps philosophers, for a lot of interesting cultural reasons, have become disconnected to the larger kind of cultural conversation. So that they are interesting, but it goes all the way back. The Western literature, you could go to already with Joseph Conrad, but even with someone like Kipling. If you read Kipling carefully, he begins to see that, as he says in one of his famous short stories, that there's a disconnect between the God of the way things should be, which is the nice, friendly God of the Victorians, and the God of the way things are, out in the missionary fields where missionaries can dedicate their lives in terrible conditions, and they can die without any success, without any recognition, and seem to be complete failures. So he articulates that, and of course the First World War will just blow this up in even more profound ways. But already before the First World War, there was a spiritual crisis as to the kind of bourgeois-tamed God didn't seem to describe the reality of the mystery of God before the apparent indifference of the natural world to human suffering. So you have Hemingway in For Whom the Bell Tolls, the protagonist dying so that Maria and her friends can go off, this unselfish act. And you you have it as a theme. It's also in, well, it's in several of his books, this idea of trying to do a beautiful deed in the midst of nature's indifference you find already in Twain a preoccupation with a kind of religiosity that no longer seems to describe the complexity of the world, and yet this desire for spirituality. His book on Joan of Arc is extraordinary in its aspirations for a world that he wished he 
could have access to, but in some ways can't. So you have a generation of writers. Some now, the continuation of this is to return to nature. And this is an old theme in, in English literature. Whenever Shakespeare thinks that his characters are beginning to become mad, <laughs> he sends them out into the green of the forest mm -hmm. where they kind of come to their senses, mm -hmm. where they redis rediscover simple truths. Orwell will point us in that direction in 1984. It's rediscovering truism, but truisms are true. Stick to those. That's mm -hmm. what his protagonist tells us. And so that water is wet, fire burns, stones are hard. So I have a certain amount of sympathy with the attempt in philosophy to return to nature because nature is tenacious. Mm -hmm. The problem is that nature gives the principles, but nature doesn't tell us how to live those principles. And we can get it badly wrong. Well, that's for sure. So in the end, that's why certain people who are described as virtue ethicists or as communitarians reject both notions because that gives the impression that a natural ethic is a sufficient ethic. Mm -hmm. And uh, is We that might have true? to fight that fight later. <laughs> yeah, but is that true or, or does it point to the insufficiency? In the end, the natural world poses a question that itself can't answer and points beyond itself. Mm -hmm. That's the theologian in me speaking. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's Augustine's vision. I think it's Aquinas's vision. So you can have great admiration for the philosopher who tries to discover the fullness by being attentive to nature and how we live in it. But on its own, it doesn't seem to get you as far as you want it to get you. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps Steinbeck gets us a little bit farther. Well, Steinbeck is interesting because in the end, he, his life ends on a kind of a tragic note. And the... Uh, I don't uh, know how his life ends. Well, I think in the end, alcohol destroyed him. And his aspirations for a kind of the role of literature in the life of the Republic, he saw crumble. Mm. And he saw America get involved in a war and his sons deeply wounded by their involvement in a war that he saw we couldn't win. And yet he saw that he was also complicit. He became the court literary figure to the Johnson administration. And I think his way of dealing with all of that is to go more and more deeply into alcohol. and. The aspirations for a worldly fulfillment that he thought was attainable for America, he saw crumbling away. Mm -hmm. With Kennedy's assassination, with our involvement in the war, with his disaffection with his sons. Yeah, it's a very tragic end, I think. Is there a final thought you want to leave us with? The, the challenge of understanding the mystery of love is worth trying to understand and be true to all of its complexity. I think, again, like Shakespeare, going out back into the green of nature and rediscovering the fullness of the good and beauty that's in passion and the good and beauty in discovering how a disciplined love can bring a deeper joy than an undisciplined love and how cliff jumping on its own is not enough, but a directed will and that attentiveness that Steinbeck had as a young man to the beauty of that breakfast and to celebrate that, and to cultivate that. Those are all worthy endeavors. Now, I also think nature is still the playground of grace, and that those who are faithful to the full complexity of love will find that they don't love alone. And what Steinbeck was actually 
tapping into was a beauty that is ever ancient and ever new and is the source of our love and we'll find fulfillment in that. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.